You're listening to Campus Review Radio. There are close to 50,000 children living in out-of-home care in Australia. This experience will often represent a huge disruption to what other kids would consider normal life. Many will face profound challenges that will ripple through into adulthood. 30% will at some point find themselves homeless and many will end up in low-paying, low-skilled jobs. Anastasia Glushko, who became a ward of the state at 12 years old, considers herself one of the lucky ones. And the biggest source of this luck, she believes, comes from her decision to enrol in university. Her time at ANU and then later at Oxford, she found utterly transformative. She wants more foster kids to have the same benefits that university gave her. In 2016, she founded Why Not You, a project dedicated to making higher education as accessible as possible for care leavers. She joins me on the podcast today. Anastasia, around um, 41% of Australian high school graduates are choosing to enrol in higher education. But for those who've grown up in state care, it's less than 3%. How can we understand this difference? So children in care face many more challenges than uh, the majority of young people in Australia. In fact, as far as indicators of social disadvantage go, it's probably one of the most reliable indicators we have in Australia. Um, So children in care have almost always had significant educational disruption. Um, I myself went to five different high schools. Um, That's considered to be a very stable placement. It's Mm. very common for that number to be in the 20s and 30s um, and much higher than that still. So huge levels of educational disruption. almost always some sort of neglect, very often physical and emotional abuse. Obviously, you don't it's, you don't end up in foster care at a drop of a hat and quite a lot of steps need to um, happen before you end up there. Usually, those steps are quite traumatic for the children themselves. So that all creates kind of psychosocial and emotional um, deficit that can take a really long time to address. But also, a lot of children in care might have had delays to their schooling, particularly if they come into care around school age. So there's just a lot behind on a lot of those really basic academic skills as well. But also, and this is worth kind of not worth underplaying, there is a massive cultural issue in terms of how, I guess, the social sector and the university sector approaches children in care. So we are kind of with kids in care where we were with Indigenous kids about 30 years ago. In so far as we expect very little um, in terms of their outcomes, we don't expect them to go to university. Uh, we don't even talk to them about going to university. Social workers and carers, although overwhelmingly they're very well-meaning and excellent people, don't know necessarily how to navigate the sector. So it's just not something that features very prominently in conversations with kids in care. So although whilst they're young teenagers, they have the same levels of aspiration for university as the majority of the population, something happens between the ages of kind of 15 and 18 where it just doesn't translate into actual enrolment. Obviously, there's a lot of work to do from a lot of angles. Yeah, um, just going back to that, uh, those social factors. I, I remember you actually gave a, a term or a phrase to this in an article you wrote previously in The Garden where you described it as the bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, for sure. Um, as a really trivial example, I did very well in my HSC, which was 
some years ago now, but I was in the top 3% of my state and no one spoke to me about university outside of my school. So none of my social workers, nobody mentioned that it might be an option. Now, it was obviously an option for me and it's something that I did end up doing. But mm. my concern is that if we're not talking about university with kids who are demonstrably doing well, then we're certainly not talking about university to young people in care who, had they been born in a middle-class family, would probably go on to university. Maybe not something like medicine or law, but certainly something like perhaps like nursing or graphic design. Those are just not conversations that we are having. Um, and I see that as well in some of the good news stories that we read about kids coming out of care. I, I personally get quite upset and incensed by some of them. It will be like Shannon is 28 and she's stacking shells at Coles. Mm. Now, that's, that's probably a good outcome for Shannon. Um, considering whatever she's come from. But that is not what most people would consider to be an excellent lifelong outcome for their own children. And we should not treat young people in care any differently, I don't believe. Mm. It's about like, you know, harnessing the potential that's there and not imposing those double standards, I guess. Um, do you think some of the idea behind this kind of attitude, um, whether it's explicit or just kind of like underneath the surface, is that, you know, unless you get foster kids earning wage as soon as possible, they'll become like a taxpayer burden. Do you think that kind of feeds into this attitude? Um, no. Well, I think that because there's so little support for kids coming out of care, there is a very practical need for them as soon as they turn 18 to start earning their own um, money. Um, so I think it kind of comes across in that way. In fact, um, we are not very good at tracking post-school um, outcomes for kids in care. So I'm not sure that anybody actually spends enough time thinking about what a tax burden um, kids coming out of care ends up being. I wish governments would think more about that uh, mm. because I think it would cause them to invest more money in providing support for these young people during what is a very critical and vulnerable period after they turn 18. But certainly I think it's got to do more with they need to be working, they need to pay their own rent because there's very little support available to them. So it's probably driven by anxiety rather than any kind of um, for the individual young people rather than probably the government. What kind of support is currently being offered by universities and the government to um, help care leavers access university? So very little. Um, on the federal government side, there is one one-off payment, which is about, I think from memory, about $1,500. Now it's not much, but you know, it would cover bond for a lot of particularly regional universities. Unfortunately, most keep in care and when I say most, I mean 60%, um, don't even know that this payment exists. It's very difficult to access. The government has acknowledged that it's under spent. You know, mm. no one's accessing this pool of money. That's basically the end, end of that list from the federal government mm. in terms of what's explicitly available to kids coming out of care to access higher ed. And by the way, that payment's available to all kids irrespective of whether they access higher ed or not. So there's nothing really at all explicitly available. Mm. Um, to support the costs associated with going to uni. Most Australian universities are likewise guilty of not providing very much support to kids in care. So that's slowly, slowly changing, and that's part of what I've been working on. It's not out of, I think on the university side, it's not out of um, neglect or any kind of menace that they have 
um, neglected this issue, I think it's got to do with the fact that there's been very little advocacy in this space. So very often I will come to universities who speak about this and their equity and diversity teams have never heard of this group of young people. They've never been represented to them. Mm. They're not aware of their needs or how they might help. And the reality is that universities provide most of the support that young people coming out of care need. It's just not explicitly available to young people coming out of care. So, for example, every university will offer support with housing and bursaries for low-income students. But if you've come out of care, you don't realise that you're eligible for any of that. It it sounds silly, but I didn't realise until I was 28 that I was low SES when I was doing my undergrad. No one told me, so I didn't know that I was eligible for things like equity scholarships. So part of the idea is to encourage universities to repackage the things that they currently offer to disadvantaged students and make them explicitly available to kids coming out of care so that they know um, that they can access them. So there is a small handful of universities that, that do that and do a lot more than that. UTS in Sydney does a really great job now. University of Newcastle does a fabulous job. There's a handful of Victorian universities, including Federation and La Trobe, um, who provide some support. But uh, relative to what equivalent countries are doing, like UK and the US, it's very modest. Um, we're talking a couple of hundred dollars worth of bursaries and some accommodation support. They're very, very lucky, but very, very modest support. So there's a great deal of work to do in this space. I would like to get to a point where we're with supporting young people coming out of care, where we are with Indigenous young people now, where every university has a comprehensive system of support that's well-resourced um, and well-recognised as something that is absolutely essential in achieving equity and diversity in that university. And there is quite an overlap there. You know, um, many Indigenous children are also um, children who have experienced foster care. Yes, so uh, uh, the stats are about, depending on which state you're in, they're about between 30 and 35% of the care population are Indigenous. Now, if you're obviously a young person who's Indigenous, you're eligible for the, the support for Indigenous young people in universities, but not if you're not Indigenous. Um, and something that's a little bit quirky about being in care as an Indigenous young person is that, and I'm not Indigenous myself, but what I hear anecdotally is because you've often been removed. There are not very many Indigenous foster carers. So you've often been living away from your community and away from your culture. And depending, I guess, at what age you came to being to care, you might not feel like you're Indigenous at all because you've not had much to do with with the community. And so actually, there, there would be Indigenous people coming out of foster care who are not even accessing the Indigenous support because they don't um, I mean, they would be aware that they're Indigenous, but they don't identify as Indigenous necessarily. And so it's worth making that support available on the basis of you being a care leader in the first instance. You actually undertook a Churchill Fellowship looking into how Australia compares to the rest of the world when it comes to improving access to higher education. What did you find in your research? So what I found was uh, partly depressing and partly very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, the depressing part is that Australia is light years behind most of Western world when it comes to supporting young people coming out of care and even young people in care. Interestingly, our care population per capita is double the size of that of UK and US, and yet we have a fraction of the support available. 
to those young people. In both UK and the US in particular, but also most European countries, the welfare of young people coming out of care is a huge social priority now. So David Cameron opens his last parliament talking about welfare of care leavers. He's written op-eds and national newspapers about it when he was prime minister. Um, it is that significant mm. on their national scale. There wouldn't be very many people in the UK who have not heard of this issue. Similarly, in the US, despite the fact that, as I said, per capita, foster care population is about half that of Australia, it's a huge national issue and there's a wealth of resources available across different sectors to support young people going into university and doing more with their lives beyond kind of low-skilled work. So that's the depressing part insofar as Australia has a lot of catching up to do. And it's particularly depressing, I suppose, because especially when compared to the US, we actually have a much more generous social welfare system in Australia. So we we should really be, uh, by all rights, doing much, much better than they are. But to be so far behind is actually quite confusing in some ways, or was to me. The encouraging part is that all of this stuff is working. So in the UK, uh, since they introduced, started to introduce support to encourage young people in care to go into university, circa 2003, the percentage of young people in care going to uni increased from 1% to, I think, up to about 14%. Those numbers are obviously still below mainstream populations, but they're obviously improving. Obviously, these interventions are making a difference. In the US, Similarly, in California, 50% of kids in care are now going to the two- or four-year college. In every state where they have introduced support for university study for young people in care, it has made a very noticeable difference. So it, although I came away thinking, oh, my goodness, Australia has so much more work left to do to kind of get to anywhere near the parity in terms of support, it is very much worth doing and it's completely doable to lose those numbers. So that mm. was a positive. So I'm supposing that, you know, following this research, that might have been a pretty big motivator for you to found Why Not You project. Can you tell me a little um, about this project? I actually founded the uh, Why Not You a couple of years before I undertook the Churchill Fellowship. It was it was kind of the other way around. It was me having done some advocacy work in Australia across a number of different states that caused me to kind of go, okay, what what is happening overseas? To get across what Australia is doing and supporting kids coming out of care, going to uni, doesn't take that long, um, depressingly. So I exhausted what the limits of what Australia was doing pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and so the Churchill Fellowship enabled me to kind of go overseas and have a look at what they were doing and what was working. What I do with Why Not You is I work with universities primarily to try and get them to implement support services to enable more young people to access university education. Uh, I'm a big believer that the government shouldn't be doing everything. And I think universities in some ways are the best place to do things like supporting young people in education, to be doing outreach. That's what they do day to day. And uh, they certainly need to be lifting their weight. And certainly international evidence shows that unless universities play their part, there really is no kind of, you know, you, the government can spend all the money that it wants, but until universities play an active role, things aren't going to improve significantly. So I work with universities to convince them to that this is something worth doing and then to develop these systems of support for young people within their kind of immediate community but also the wider community that they operate in. So I talk to them about things like 
young people in care when they turn 18 they have nowhere to live. Only 20% of kids in care are able to stay where they're living. So they effectively become homeless the moment that they turn 18 mm. and you cannot expect them to succeed at your institution if they are to be homeless. So as their institution, as their university, you might want to think about supporting them with accommodation options, whether that's subsidising on-campus accommodation or providing them a loan to help them pay their bond, um, because that's as basic as it can be a lot of the time. If you don't have any money to cover bonds, and if you're going to uni, Melbourne or Sydney, it's really prohibitive. So I kind of talk to them about the need to do things like that, about the need to make sure that their mental health services that they provide very generously most of the time packaged in such a way that if you're a care leaver and you're literally putting into Google University of Sydney Mental Health Services Care Leader, you can find information that points you in the right direction. So a lot of it is really low-hanging fruit, uh, but one of the main things I kind of try to get universities to do that's kind of more long-term is to work on the outreach part of it. So starting the conversations with young people while they're still in care, including kids in care in their outreach programs, making sure that teenagers in foster care know that university is a live option for them, know that university is totally accessible and doable. So we run open days together with universities. We just did a really great one with UTS. We are planning a summer school later in the year to kind of give them that prolonged exposure um, getting universities more institutionally invested in this area of social needs over the long term. So that's kind of what we do. We don't deliver services in terms of academic skill preparedness or anything like that because universities are doing a really good job at that. There is mm. no need to, to do that. Yeah, yep, that it. sounds pretty substantial. <laughs> um, <laughs> have you, um, in the three years or so that you've been running this project, have you found universities on the whole to be quite responsive? Yeah, hugely. Um, something that I've been very moved by, actually, is the extent to which people who work with equity and diversity in universities are genuinely so passionate about improving university access to the institutions. Uh, they're much more passionate than policymakers, I find. Mm. I guess it's their full-time job and maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise, but they really see the need for this work and they do it. I mean, we see that across a number of sectors. Universities now in the last few years have done some excellent work in broadening their access and participation for refugees, for example. Now, there hasn't been a particularly, you know, there's no economic driver for that. If anything, it costs universities money. But I think the commitment to making sure that more disadvantaged people are able to access uni is something that they're genuinely very passionate about. So that's on the plus side. On the minus side, I guess, universities are very bureaucratic institutions. So, uh, and that's true irrespective of which university you deal with. So it takes a very long time for things to happen, a very long time to translate that genuine desire to improve access to actual programs. And depending on the university and its, you know, various priorities and also the election cycle, it can just take some time, quite a long time. But we're getting there and that's really positive. Um, Anastasia, this project is, you know, in a sense, a very personal one, being a, a former foster kid yourself. Um, if I could just ask you to remember that time, you know, when you were 12 years old and you were, you had your first placement, um, how did school and home life change for you after that? Um, so my experience of care was probably um, unique to most 
most young people who find themselves in care. I came to Australia as a refugee and shortly after I arrived in Australia, my mum died. And so the reason that I ended up in, in care wasn't actually because I was neglected or anything like mm. that. It was very practical. There was nobody to look after me and my brother in Australia. So I was dealing with, we'd only been in Australia for six months at that point. So I was learning English and there was a lot of kind of changes on that and obviously just adjusting to Australian way of life and just like fitting in school I suppose I think I was in year seven at the time obviously the changes to family life are pretty obvious I was no longer living with my mum and my brother I was living in a different um different place um look it's a lonely time it's it's grim being in care it's I've had I've had some really lovely carers i particularly my last family that I lived with were, you know, I'm fatally generous and kind and I really wouldn't have ended up at uni if not for their um, particularly financial support. Um, irrespective of how kind and nice your foster family is, it's not your family. And that's very difficult to adjust. There's obviously grief that, that you know, that you deal with, irrespective of how you came into care. Uh, and yeah, I went through a number of foster homes. And so there's that sense of rejection and adjustment and getting used to a new family. It's kind of like being rotated through family, friends, kind of, like you've never met insofar as they're really nice to you, but if they're not your family and it's very scary and lonely. Yeah, that must have been um, devastating on so many fronts. First, kind of losing your, your home country and then your mother and then you were separated from your brother. Which country did you did you come to Australia from? Um, we were in the former Soviet Union, so we had come from Kazakhstan. Did you have any decision-making power or in wanting to stay with your brother? Like, is that a common thing for siblings to be separated? It's a very common thing for siblings just to be separated for the same reason that Indigenous kids often don't get to stay with Indigenous families and it's just a huge shortage of foster carers. I mean, at the moment, I gather there are 150 kids in New South Wales who are living in hotel rooms. Mm. Um, so it's pretty acute just at this moment in time. Uh, it's particularly common for teenagers. We weren't naughty kids or anything, but taking on two teenagers is pretty... I mean, my brother was 11. I was 13 when we were split up. Mm. Um we were pretty well behaved, actually, but you know, like you couldn't. I wouldn't want to take two teenagers into my home, so mm. I don't kind of begrudge anybody not wanting to do that. Um, we were in the same home initially with the same family, but that didn't work out, and I was placed with another family. Have you stayed in contact with your brother, or have you reunited? Yeah, yeah, we're very close now. Oh, we're very good. close now. There was the, the, the period our teenage years were very, I suppose, were very touch and go. We only saw each other a few times a year. It was difficult, difficult to adjust and getting to know each other every time, particularly since we were so close before. Mm. And so our relationship definitely suffered over that period. But now as adults, we are very close and go on holidays together and all of that <laughs> stuff, which has been a really lovely thing that I probably didn't expect to happen. Yeah. Um, but I think for both of us, we're still kind of rebuilding what was lost mm. during our teenage years. But he's doing he's doing very well. He's um, a captain in the army in the Australian infantry. So wow, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's one of those you know refugees that is actually protecting Australia. So um, he's a good news story, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I remember you saying that you were, um, you know, you had multiple placements across multiple families. Did you um, have to move between schools? So I went to five different high schools. 
Mm. Uh, but I was able to stay in the last one from the end of year nine until the end of year 12. So that was because they actually couldn't find a foster family for me at that time. And they put me in a school that had a boarding facility. So I was actually, I lived, I actually didn't have a family at all for close to a year, I think. I can't remember, but I, I lived in a boarding school. Uh, and then my last family took me on, but they, I remained at the boarding school. So I came to them on holidays and occasional weekends. Yeah, I lived on, I lived in the, um, in the boarding house. I imagine all those, you know, all those disruptions moving from high school to high school, that would have an impact, I think, on anyone's, you know, kind of engagement, you know, when you have a different teacher every time and trying to, trying to make new friends, all those different challenges. Did your, you know, your performance, your academic performance suffer in, in any way? So I think that it definitely does in most cases. It definitely did for my brother. My brother was hugely impacted academically by all those school changes. I wasn't. And that was probably because I was always very driven academically. Mm. I always wanted to do really well. It's always my academic abilities is always something that I've derived my sense of self and self-confidence from. So it was very important for me always to do very well at school. So in my particular case, I don't think it had a huge impact, but then I was at the same school for the really important years that you 10, 11 and 12, where the results really matter, where um, outcomes really matter. Um, So, you know, that's different again. I mean, overwhelmingly intentional evidence shows that, and domestic evidence that lots of school changes obviously have a huge impact on performance. It didn't in my case, uh, but that's just luck, I think, mm. rather than anything the schools or the social um, workers or the agencies did to ensure that there was minimal disruption. I mean, there was nothing in place to ensure minimal disruption. There was mm. nothing at all. So I can't, I can't apportion that to any intervention. There were no interventions. Mm. So you've graduated from year 12. What's on your mind yep. at the time? Are you convinced that you want to attend university or do you have any doubts? What are you feeling at that time? So for me, I always knew that I would go to university and I think that's partly being a refugee and coming to Australia and having that thing that a lot of, I guess, children of new migrants and new migrants have, which is that you absolutely must grab it with both hands, the mm. opportunity that you have in this country and everything that you've been given. I have to say um, I consider myself incredibly privileged to have been able to come and settle in Australia and I have, I'm grateful every day for the opportunities that I've been given in this country. So uh, there was never a moment that I wasn't going to uni. Mm. The thing that I was anxious about was where I was going to live. Um, so I was living in Sydney and I was coming to the Australian National University for uh, my undergrad. I always wanted to study political science and I was that this was the place to do it at the time. I hope still is for the, you know, ongoing value of my degree. (laughs) And I was quite anxious about how, where I would live, um, kind of starting again from scratch by myself and just affording life, I guess. My foster parents were very generous in lending me money to enable me to pay my accommodation fees up front, which at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but actually reduced your cost by 30%, mm-hmm. which is so crazy because it's so obviously privileged wealthy family. Yeah. But they were, very, they, were, they were very generous in lending me that money and then all of my youth allowance went back to them to pay for that. So I had zero money left at the end of every week when I started uni, but 
out of work job, part time jobs to pay for. You know, once food and board was taken care of, it definitely takes the edge off. Um, as a student at ANU, were you aware of any other foster kids? Was there a sense of community, any networks? No. <laughs> One of the really interesting things about being in care is that ever since we've done away with orphanages, you actually don't know many other kids in care. Like, why would you? You don't never meet them. Mm. So that lack of community is actually a, a big issue. Um, in the US, a lot of universities, um, so UCLA, for example, I met with them on my Churchill Fellowship, uh, provide an opportunity for kids coming out of care to get together. And so they do really sweet things like um, on Mother's Day, for example, they get together for dinner. Now, if you've been in care, you're not going to have, like your relationship with your mother is going to be problematic at best. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it can be a really difficult time for universally a bad time for kids in care, right? So, or who have been in care. So kind of that opportunity to get together for dinner and be thoughtful about it that way. And kind of you talk about it, not talk about it, whatever, but kind of like as a mm. silent nod. So we get it. This is a crappy time. They say it's a huge, makes a huge difference for those young people. Mm. But no, there's nothing, you know, like aiming you then as it is now, even if there was an opportunity to tell them I'm coming out of care, there wasn't anybody to tell because there was nothing that they provided in terms of services. And even if they knew, what would they have done with that information? So this is part of what I advocate to universities is trying to bring, um, get young people who've come from care to connect to one another because that first year in particular is the hardest. It's the hardest for everyone going into care, but it's the most acutely vulnerable period for young people coming out of care because so much has changed and all the support that they were used to from their social workers has been removed. So creating that sense of community is really important. And of course, the role model side, you don't, I don't know any professionally accomplished kids in who've come from care or very few and the ones that I do know I only know through one or you who have reached out to me and said hey I'm a kid who's been in care who's come good and I do this really cool stuff now but there isn't like an opportunity to connect to one another at all so I think it's really important to create that better visibility of kids in care who have done well so that other kids still in care, but also young people just coming out of care can look to them. They've made it through. Um, it's totally doable. If they can hack it, I can hack it. So Yeah. I guess the golden question, how did your time at ANU and then later at Oxford, which is you know, an amazing achievement for anyone, change who you are as a person? The two most important things for me that have come out of my university education, aside from the fact that they have given me a career and an ability to pay my bills, which is not to be underplayed for anyone, but mm. especially for low SES people. Um, I think the two most important things are that university has significantly broadened my horizons in terms of what is achievable and what I can do with my life. And it has given me a great sense of personal confidence and self-worth that is, I think, quite rare. Some people never, never kind of derive uh, the thing that they're good at, they never come to understand it. University really gave me that. It gave me a really close, a clear understanding of this is the stuff you're good at, this is the stuff you should pursue. So, you know, that's been invaluable. I guess on a personal level, I met my husband at university, all mm-hmm. my closest friends and my university friends, um, they're lifelong friends, Oxford and ANU people. Many of them have done most of them have done amazing things with their lives, um, which continues to be an inspiration and something to envy and 
trying to keep up with. So that's, that's really important to me as well. But university also gave me, I mean, I said I would say two things, but it's given me everything really. <laughs> it gave me an opportunity to travel the world. I was able to go on exchange to Canada during my undergrad years. It made me believe, truly really believe that I could live my life in not a dissimilar way to the way that my life might have been had I been born a child of a barrister and a surgeon. Mm. Um, You know, um, I could carve that out for myself. Yes, it would be more difficult than if I had been born a child of a barrister and a surgeon, but uh, I can make such a life happen for myself. And that's been really significant for me. And although I recognize university is not for everyone, it shouldn't be for everyone, that's not how the world works, I really, really hope that more young people in care are able to realise the benefits that university provides for themselves. Mm. Um, it is an elitist system, but it is precisely that it is elitist that it is so valuable for disadvantaged people to be able to access because the transformation it offers in terms of outcomes is enormous for them, uh, whereas it's probably marginal for privileged young people. Mm. So. I think that's a really strong message and I'm overjoyed that, you know, it's it's worked out for you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and all the, all your insights with me here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, that's all right. Thank you for having me. And um, I just encourage anyone who's interested in finding out more about the Why Not You project or how to get involved or if they've been in care themselves and they want to have a chat, just to check out our website, which is just onoutproject.com. There's lots of information there if you are still in care about how to navigate higher education system, how to apply, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, have a look. Absolutely, I can second that. I've had a um, brief look myself, and I think it's, you know, the wording itself is just really accessible. It's not, it's not boring, it's really fun, and, and yeah, it's a great resource. And I recommend any foster kid to check it out if they're thinking oh, about you. Oh, that's very kind to say that. <laughs> well, it's um, very complex. Um, the university application process is so, so complex, mm. and it's now more complex now than it was when I went to uni, and it's really, really hard to simplify it, especially right. since it differs from university to university yep. as well. Yep. So, um, uh, you know, we try to make it as simple as possible, keeping in mind that we can never make it yeah completely well you've done a great job (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much that's all right all right have a wonderful day anastasia and um all the best no worries thanks Kate. bye you've been listening to campus review radio with me kate brendergast more higher education stories and news go to campusreview.com